Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16 as we continue our way through 1 Samuel. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the row in front of you. You can borrow that, and if you don't own a Bible, you can take that one home as your gift from us. 1 Samuel chapter 16. We are, um, have been preaching through 1 Samuel for a good while now, taking it chapter by chapter. And we are hit, hitting a very big uh, change in the, in the story of, of Samuel and Saul. And now we are about to meet David for the very first time. And he's going to be anointed by Samuel to be the next king. And we've had a, a rough couple of chapters, haven't we? From 13 to 15, Saul has had a rough time, hasn't he? And it's been a, a dark period of disobedience for the first king of Israel. But now we're entering a new, a new period where we're meeting this new king, this king-to-be, David. And so it's going to shine hope into the story here of Israel, where we've seen so much disappointment and disobedience. So if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We stand out of respect for God's word. For it is God speaking to us, directly to us. Pay careful attention to God's word for you today. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who's skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, 
He will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, behold, I had seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who was skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Please join me in prayer. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight and glorifying to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so far in 1 Samuel, a lot has been lost. Right? A lot has been a disappointment with Saul. The first king, Saul, has failed miserably. Chapter from 13 to 15, we see a, a major disobedience problem with Saul. A character flaw. that He doesn't trust the Lord. He trusts in himself. He fears what other people think about him. And he constantly falls into this pattern of disobeying God. They've won some battles, this is true, but they've also lost quite a few. But in the end, the worst outcome has occurred. Israel has a king that is half-hearted to God. Israel has a king that is half-hearted to God, toward God. And so there's a lot of hope lost. It's sort of like if you have filled out an NCAA bracket and you had a lot of hope, right? You had a lot of expectation. Your team that you picked was going to make it all the way. And you justified every choice you made, right? They had a better record, right? They shot better throughout the season. But if your bracket's like mine, it's busted. It's busted. Especially if you chose UVA to go all the way. A lot of hope has been lost. But on a, a more serious turn, ask yourself this morning, where does your hope come from? Where does your hope come from this morning? I know some of you are dealing with your own sins this morning. Some have been exposed to you maybe more recently, and they seem insurmountable. And when you think about your own sins and your struggles, you you define it as all-powerful. It's all-powerful. I cannot defeat them. I know some of you are dealing with your, your past guilt and regret Decisions you've made in your past, and that guilt seems unrelenting. And you define yourself as unforgivable. I know some of you are dealing with sadness and grief over tragedy and loss. And when you think about those things, it seems overwhelming. And you define it as unbearable. I know some of you are dealing with disappointment. That seems stomach-churning when you think about what you're disappointed over. So with that in mind, I ask you again, where where does your hope come from this morning when you're in that state? Maybe you're looking for hope and you haven't found it yet. 
Maybe you're not a Christian this morning. You don't know where it can be found. Well, this morning, we're going to look at two places in this passage where our hope does not come from, and two places where our hope does come from. The first two places, and it's in your outline in the bulletin, where our hope does not come from is in what we've lost and in what we can see, what our eyes can see. Our hope doesn't come from those two things. And then we're going to look at where our hope does come from. It comes from the Holy Spirit and our coming King. And as we talk about these things, I hope to point you to Jesus. I hope to point you to our coming King, the coming King that that even David was pointing to. That God's choosing and anointing of David points us to our ultimate king. And when we hope in him, it's an indestructible hope. It's a hope that lasts. First, let's look at our hope, which is not in, what our hope is not in. Our hope is not in what we've lost. Let's see what has been lost. Isn't it true we can be a lot like Samuel and be stuck in our grief? Have you ever been there before? You've gone through something tragic and you've just, you feel like you're stuck in it. One detail that I missed last week when I was preaching on chapter 15 is I didn't really unpack the fact that uh, Samuel was grieved over Saul's disobedience. He was greatly distressed. Look back with me at verse 11 of chapter 15 where God says to Samuel, I regret that I've made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. And he cried to the Lord all night. Why was Samuel so upset? Why was Samuel so upset? Well, you see, Saul was the king. He was the chosen king. Saul was supposed to reflect God to the people. This image of God to the people. He was supposed to reflect God's righteousness, his wisdom, his justice, his love, his obedience. It was all meant to to point the people to God, and he's failed at that. Instead, what do we see with Saul? He's jealous. He's prideful. He's selfish. He's fearful. And this is why Samuel is so, so much in grief. And it can be all-consuming, can it? Grief can be all-consuming. I actually forgot about that, that grief can be all-consuming up until two weeks or two or three weeks ago when uh, I was getting ready, getting dressed to go to church, and we get a call from my family that my stepbrother passed all of a sudden. And it was the first time I ever got hit by a Mack truck of grief, right, minutes before coming to church. And, and that was heavy. And then going to the hotel and seeing my, my stepdad and just, you know, those times of grief where you just fall into each other's arms because you're so sad. It can be, it's, it's, it's sort of, grief like that is instinctual, it is uncontrollable, it's a, it's a power that you can't really control. It's like waves of emotion and, that pulse through you without your permission, without your decision. And grief can blind us, can it, to the truth when we're stuck in it. We can become so overcome and focused by our sadness that we can't think of anything else. You know what? It's appropriate in those moments to grieve. It is. But we have to ask, how do we move on? 
Right? How do we move forward in our sadness? And to move on from sadness, God gives his people a purpose. What does he say to Samuel in our first verse of chapter 16? He says, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? You know, God isn't being overly harsh here. He's not condemning Samuel for his grief. When he says, how long will you mourn over Saul? That's not really a question, is it? It's not really a question. It's really a call to action. He's providing Samuel a reason to, to move on and to go forward. He gives Samuel a new mission, doesn't he? Look again at verse 1. He says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. He gives him a new task, a purpose. And who is Jesse? Who is this Je- we haven't heard his name yet. But if you've read the book of Ruth and Judges, and now we're in 1 Samuel, he's the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. And then, obviously, David will be his, is his son, which is, as we know, the line that points to Jesus, the line of Jesus. So Samuel heads off to Bethlehem, and, and the elders come out to meet him and ask him, do you come peaceably? Why do they ask that? Well, go back to chapter 15, verses 32 and 33. Samuel says, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. This is the king of the Amalekites. Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Need I say more? Need I say more? of why people asked him if he comes peaceably, he had just destroyed this king. So he heads off, and he, and he goes on this mission that God has given him. Brothers and sisters, my hope is that God is at work even when we see no way forward. That he gives us jobs to do in and through his work. And for the people of God, Mourning and grief is not the end of the story for God's people. There is something to look forward to. There is something to do, to move toward. Um, There's actually two good examples in the scriptures of this, of of the people of God mourning a loss and then God giving them a mission. From Joshua Joshua chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Moses has just died. Joshua is going to be the next leader. And they're thinking in the midst of their grief, how do we move on? God says to Joshua and all the people, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving them to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I will give to you, just as I promised Moses. You see how he's giving them a purpose, a reason to move on in the midst of the grief. There's a really good example in Acts chapter 1 as well. After Jesus has uh, died and rose again and then even ascended into heaven and has left the disciples and they're staring into heaven up in the skies. I'm sure we don't really, it doesn't tell us how they're feeling, but I'm sure they were wondering, Jesus, would you please come back? We don't want you to go. And it says in Acts chapter 1, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, 
Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? It's not really a question, is it? It's a call to action. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of your grief, God calls us out of grief, eventually, into action. Grief is important. You have to go through that. But it's not the end of the story for the believer. And so if you've gone through that, if you're in the midst of grief, what is God calling you to do? There's a promise in Jeremiah 31 that that God will turn his people's mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Our mourning is not the end of the story. And very often, in the midst of your grief, and you've probably experienced this, if you've gone through something tragic, that turning point is often when you see a way you can serve and love someone else, isn't it? Where you can enter into someone else's pain and help them and love, and love them. So what is God calling you to do? Our hope, brothers and sisters, is not in what we've lost. Right? It's not in what we lost. He tells Samuel to move forward. Let's look at the second thing our hope is not in this morning. Our hope is not in what we see. It's not in what we see. So Samuel has some fear, doesn't he? He has a little bit of fear of thinking about going and and anointing a new king uh, while Saul is still king. If it wasn't God who had said this is okay, this is basically treason, is it not? To say, hey, I'm going I'm to anoint a new king while there's still an, a king on the throne. So Saul, Samuel is rightfully scared. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, he says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. There's a little bit of an issue here some people have with God saying that. They think God is, is um, not telling the truth. Um, so what is God doing here? Well, he's not lying. What God is doing is giving Samuel a cover story, isn't he? He's concealing truth. Just because you conceal some truth doesn't mean you're lying. He's giving him a cover story so that the mission can go forward, so that Samuel won't be killed. He's concealing and not revealing all of what Samuel is to do. If you think about it, this is what our missionaries do in, in countries where they're close to Christianity, where they could be killed. Right? What do they do? They sometimes use different names. They sometimes, well, most of the time, they have a different job when they go into that country so they can enter into that country. But what is their main objective? Tell people about Jesus, right? It's what our missionaries do very often. And that makes long-term gospel work possible. So it's a very similar situation here. And so Samuel moves forward. He goes to the people. They ask, are you coming peaceably? And and the elders come out and say that. And he says, yes, peaceably. I'm coming to sacrifice, looking for Jesse. Verse 6, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. We're a lot like him, aren't we? A lot like Samuel. We focus on what we see. We judge books by their covers. We are drawn to beauty, to strength, to charisma, charm, and put-togetherness. It's sort of like um, when, these, when, you know, when all these brothers are lined up to be picked 
for the next king. It's like being picked for kickball, right, when you're in elementary school. I was uh, picking my kids up the other day. I got there early. I was in the car pickup line, and the kids were still playing. I think they were playing football off in this field. But before they were getting started, they had, you know, two representatives who were picking their team. And, of course, who were the people they got picked first? The big, the strong, the boys. And then it got, as the people went further on, it went down to the, the runs at the end of the line. And that's, that was always a big fear growing up. You'd be picked last. That'd be so bad. But we're like that from the beginning. Aren't we? we pick, we use our eyes, and we see beauty and strength, charisma. And so Samuel was like the rest of Israel in this regard. Remember Saul's description when we first meet him back in chapter 9. How is Saul described? A handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And so it's with that in mind, Samuel looks at Eliab. And he's like, surely this is the guy. You know, and if Eliab had been chosen, he would, be, he would have been Saul 2.0, right? He looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But this is what the Lord says. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected Eliab. I've rejected him. The church, time and again, has been guilty of this too. We often have an obsession with celebrity, don't we? We elevate celebrity preachers who are gifted and charismatic, even when we sort of turn a blind eye to character flaws or or red flags in their character. And we forget that it's the character of a leader that God looks at most. And those gifts and talents can be developed and trained. In time, we don't we get that backwards often, and that's for elders and deacons and anybody in leadership position. When we look at the the qualifications in First Timothy and, and Titus, and read through those qualifications, they emphasize character over skill. Really, the only skill that's mentioned is able to teach in those lists. Everything else is about your character. It's about who you are. And so God operates in these spaces that are invisible, that we aren't inclined to look. God looks on the heart. Look again at verse 7. The Lord looks on the heart. He looks at your character. He looks at your desire. I'm going to ask you a question this morning. Is it a good thing? Think about this. Is it a good thing that God has x-ray vision into your heart right now? How do you feel about that? That he sees it all very clearly. He sees your thoughts. He sees your secrets. He sees your desires. You can't hide anything from God. And one way to say it is you're naked before God. Psalm 139, David even says, Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it altogether. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. God sees everything. Is that good news? Is that good news to you? Well, let me just say that without a means of being forgiven, that's a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad reality for you and me. Without a means of being forgiven. That's bad. But with Christ, it's the ultimate comfort and joy because we have a Savior. We have a God who sees all the the dirt 
He sees all the mess. He sees all of our lusts and our angers and our jealousies and our envy and our pride. He sees it all. And he still desires to save us. There's no greater joy. There's no greater comfort than knowing we have a Savior and a God who sees everything, yet still Jesus went to the cross to to die for us. And for you believers this morning, I I know 100% of you this morning here struggle with remaining sin in your life, like I do, like I do. You know the things you do that you don't like, like Paul says in Romans 7, the very things I do, I hate. But I'm asking you to do something this morning. Ask the question, why? Why do I do those things? Those questions dig into your motivations. It digs into your heart. Why do I do the things I do? What am I believing in that's false? What am I trusting in that is not God? What am I loving besides God? Dig into your heart. Do that work. But you might be asking this morning, well, wasn't David handsome? Right? Wasn't he beautiful, it says in the text? So surely God was pleased with David's looks, right? That's why, that's why he was chosen, right? Look at, verse, look at verse 12. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Ruddy. Do you know what ruddy means? I had to look that up. It gets to the idea of red, redness. And I don't think he had red hair. It's probably more that he had more of a reddish complexion in his skin tone. So he was handsome, right? Didn't God choose him for that? No, the point isn't that God loves ugly people more than pretty people, okay? There isn't some sign hanging in the, on the gate of heaven, ugly people only. No. The point is externals are not important to God. That's not what he focuses on. That's not what matters ultimately. What matters is David wasn't the oldest. He wasn't the most impressive. He did the menial unflashy jobs. What mattered most to God was what was on the inside of David. His heart. And no, it wasn't perfect. But he was faithful. He was faithful. And so God can see all in our hearts. He can see our whole stories as well. He has better vision than you and I. Is that good news or not? I think that's great news that I can trust in a God who sees everything. Another example of, of, of me uh, taking my kids to school, I have to go over the JRB pretty much every day, Tuesday through Friday. And on some days on the JRB, there is a lot of fog on the river. I mean, very thick, to the point where you, you can't see the lift. You, you certainly can't see the other side of the river. You can maybe only see you know, 10 to 15 feet in front of the vehicle. And so what do I do in times like that? Well, first of all, I, I drive slowly. And my attention increases, and I think about where I'm going. I think about the cars in front of me, and all that is heightened. But I know I can't see 30, 50, 100 yards in front of me because the, God's not allowing me to see that far. And so I'm trusting in Him, and I'm slowing down, and I'm relying on Him to keep us safe. And that's the way our lives are often. We have a lot of fog around us. We can't see very far. And that's the essence of what faith is, isn't it? Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's what God calls us to. That's an aspect of what faith is. And in Romans 8, he, he explains it like this, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen 
is not hope. If you're seeing, you're really not hoping, you're, you're grasping it. But for who hopes in what he sees, Paul says. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That's what God is asking us to do. And so we are to trust in the God who sees both in our hearts and in our past, in our future, in our present, perfectly. So our hope is not in what we see. So what is our hope in? Well, the first thing our hope is in in this text is, is it comes from the Spirit. Our hope is in the Spirit, that we need the power of the Spirit. As we get further along in our text, we see that David is the chosen one, and we get to verse 13, where the anointing happens. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. If you notice, this story is told very artfully, very creatively. David's name isn't even mentioned until verse 13. It's concealed. But now we finally hear his name is David, this young boy. And the Spirit rushes upon him. That's the same thing that happened to Saul when he was chosen. And so we're seeing a very uh, a strong contrast, aren't we, between Saul and David. D- David is now receiving the Spirit. David's success was not going to be in his abilities, but in God's ability, the Spirit of God. And we see in verse 18, this emphasized again that the Lord is with David. The Lord is with him. And you and I, we need to be reminded of that as well. If you're a believer in Christ, you have the Spirit. It's been imparted to you. It indwells you. He's with you. Christ is with you by the Spirit. But we get this interesting story at the end of chapter 16 of not only David receiving the Spirit, but Saul having the Spirit taken from him and him receiving a harmful Spirit from God. The Spirit enters David, but the Spirit leaves Saul. Maybe you're struggling with that idea that, that this harmful, the word is actually even uh, technically evil, Spirit comes to Saul. How do we interpret that? Well, we've actually seen that in Judges 9. We see that God sent an evil spirit on Gideon's son. And as a judgment, really, against him when he killed uh, all his brothers, 70 brothers, in Judges 9. And so God sending the spirit was really a judgment upon him and upon uh, the people of Shechem. And so we see that God does that in a spirit of judgment upon him. And so is Saul being judged here? I think he is. He's, he's been disobedient. The, the kingdom has been taken from him. And in this mysterious way, God is judging him for it. But he's, but he's not going to remove all comfort from him, is he? He's going to actually give him David to comfort him, the one who has the spirit. And so what does Saul do? He... he is struggling with this, so his advisors tell him, well, I've heard of this guy, this guy David, he's got the spirit, and he, he, can, he can play the, the lyre really well, and, and that will soothe you. And so he invites him in, he takes him into his service, and he comforts him whenever the spirit is, is, is on him. And then this, this harmful the spirit de- departs from him. And so how can, we, how can we think through that? Well, believers who have the Spirit, we can comfort unbelievers, can't we? 
We can comfort those who are living lives of rebellion. We can make a positive impact on people because we have the Spirit in ourselves. Romans 8, again, Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Talking about believers. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit intercedes for the saints. Isn't that a comfort to you? That when you don't know what to do, when you don't know what to say, the Spirit is interceding for you. The Holy Spirit. That when you see little bits of growth in your life and sanctification and love for those around you, love for your wife and your kids, your husband, and brothers and sisters here in the church that you want to serve, that is the Spirit. Be encouraged. That's the Spirit working upon you. Don't be discouraged when, when you feel like you, you only see your sin. When you see moments of obedience and moments of love for God's Word, that is the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, working upon your heart. Be encouraged by that. And know that also you can comfort those who are going through difficult times. As David was a comfort to Saul. What's the last place that our hope comes from? It comes from our king this morning. Have you ever thought about, going back a few chapters, that God is so gracious to give Israel a king? Do you remember why they asked for a king in the first place? They wanted to be like the other nations, and essentially what they were saying to God is that we don't trust you, God, to be our king. We want our own king. And he's providing this king for them. They've had a bad king. Hopefully they've learned something from that. But now he's providing a good king. A king that comes from Bethlehem. Just like the future king would come from. Micah 5.2 says, Oh, but you, O Bethlehem, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, when from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Talking about David, but also this future king, that Jesus was to be born in the town of David, that again and again in the Gospels, Jesus was referred to as the son of David, and he was the great, 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 great grandson of David, but he was also the better David. That David, with all of his goodness, with all of his love for God, with all of his beautiful poetry that we have in the Bible, and all the Psalms that he wrote for our benefit, he would fall short as well. He's not enough. As I read from Acts earlier, he died. He died and did not rise again. We needed a better David to come. And so we turn our attention to this future king that is, that is promised, this Jesus of Nazareth, who, who was anointed to be king just like David. If you remember at his baptism, Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus was baptized, immediately it says, he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. So God confirming his kingship. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And later in Jesus' ministry, when he goes into the synagogue, he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah 61, where it reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to proclaim liberty to the captives. And after he reads that text, he says, this reading has been fulfilled 
today in your hearing. That I am what Isaiah was talking about. I'm here to give good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. So I tell you this morning, Hope Church, Jesus is our only hope to remove that guilt and shame that you have, to forgive those sins and disobedience that you're thinking about, to take away your grief and your sadness. And he doesn't just remove that. He doesn't just cleanse us from those things. He gives us his own righteousness. That when God looks at you, he doesn't just see a a person washed clean, clean from his sins or her sins, but he sees his own son's righteousness when he looks at you. That's the gospel. And so by trusting in King Jesus, you're cleansed by his payment on the cross. You are righteous by his own performance. You are equipped by his own power and the Holy Spirit. And as we're about to sing, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. He was the better David. He was perfect in all ways. Let your hope this morning be in that perfect and powerful king. And then as you think about how am I going to serve him, I was talking to a dear dear brother, father in Christ yesterday. And he was such an encouragement to me because his body's failing. And we were talking about how difficult that is, you know, as your body fails. And you think about maybe the, the, the end could be near in the next year or less. And he's been doing this Bible study for a long time. And those guys he, he leads a Bible study for have asked him to keep doing it. And I was so encouraged because as his energy is getting less and less, he continues to lead this Bible study for these guys and love them and teach them about the God that he might be meeting soon in person. So encouraging. There's something for you to do, brothers and sisters, as you think about what you've lost, as you think about what you can't see, you long for that coming king. He has a job for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you for your presence. We long to be like David who who had the Lord with him in his kingship and in his reign. But we also have a true king who is the Lord, who came in the flesh, lived that life that we could never have lived, and rose again to eternal life after making atonement for all of our sins. King Jesus, we love you. We thank you. Lift us up to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.